Okay, so today's gonna be a little different. This isn't actually a talk or a lecture or anything like that. It's actually, I came across a long, uh, long form article, this interview that Steve Jobs gave Playboy magazine when he was 29 years old. And I love stuff like this because we see who he was as a, as a person at a specific point in time where he can elaborate on his thoughts at that given time. And what's especially interesting is the fact that he doesn't know what his future holds, right? So he's just hypothesizing. He's just talking about the products he's building and, and his philosophy on, and, on building Apple. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know how his life and his career turned out. Um, and so let's go back into 1985 and let's look at the thoughts of a, of a young Steve Jobs at 29 years old. So he starts out, he says, when I went to school, it was right after the 1960s and before this general wave of practical purpose, purposefulness had set in. Now students aren't even thinking in idealistic terms or at least nowhere near as much. Most of the people I know who are my age have that ingrained in them forever. So this is a constant uh, theme throughout the, the interview where he, you could see that he favors idealism, um, building like products for the sake of building the best product possible, not just being the most practical. And he compares and contrasts like the, the, uh, the great example of like practicality in his day is like IBM versus like the idealism of, of Apple. There's two, even though they're, they're engaged in the same process, trying to build personal computers, they come at very different um, uh, strategies and techniques based on where they started. Uh, so he says, we're living in the wake of the petrochemical revolution of 100 years ago. The petrochemical revolution gave us free energy, free mechanical energy in this case. It changed the texture of society in most ways. This revolution, the information revolution, is a revolution of free energy as well, but of another kind, free intellectual energy. This is a revolution that will dwarf the petrochemical revolution, and we're on the very forefront. So I think it's very true what he was saying in 1985. I still think, uh, you know, 30-something years, 35-plus years later, whatever, uh, however long it's been, that we're still at the very forefront. It's something I think about a lot, the idea that we're very fortunate and lucky to be to be born in the information revolution, the information age, the age of the Internet, whatever you want to call it. But it's very unique. It's the most unique like a, a time like today where we have access to the world's some of all human knowledge in our essentially in our pockets uh has never occurred before like i'm very curious to see what it's going to turn out not only you know i think about like what's going to happen in my lifetime but what's going to happen in my daughter's lifetime and then her children's lifetime it's it's kind of uh, crazy to even think about that he continues a computer is the most incredible tool we've ever seen it can be a writing tool a communication center a supercalculator a planner a filer an artistic instrument all in one just by giving in, giving it new instructions or software to work from. There are no other tools that have the power and versatility of a computer. We have no idea how far it's going to go. And, you talk, and he's talking about, uh, you know, he's just the very beginning of the personal computer industry, and he just got done saying, like, you can't predict it. So he goes back into history and compares the the problem of him trying to tell people in 1985 all the the future potential of of what a personal computer is going to be capable of similar to like Alexander Graham Bell trying to tell you what the telephone would do 100 years ago so he says the hard part of what we're up against now is to add, is that people ask you about specifics and you can't tell them 100 years ago if somebody asked Alexander Graham Bell well what well what are you going to do what are you going to be able to do with a telephone he wouldn't be able to tell him uh, the, he wouldn't have been able to tell them the ways the telephone would affect the world. He didn't know that people would use the telephone to call up and find out what movies you're playing that night or to go order some groceries or to call a relative on the other side of the globe. That is what the Macintosh is all about. 
It's the first telephone of our industry. Then he says something that was really interesting a few paragraphs later where there's this like weird dichotomy in life. And he says, I don't ever think I've worked so, I don't think I've ever worked so hard on something, but working on Macintosh was the neatest experience of my life. And the dichotomy is that usually the things that are hardest to do, the things that you spend the most time doing, things that you have to struggle to accomplish are the things that you enjoy the most. Yet for some reason, our nature is to drift towards like the easiest possible path. But that's not, I don't think that's a, I don't think if you always take the easiest route that you're going to actually have the most fulfilled life. And I think Steve Jobs is echoing that at 29 years old. He says, ad campaigns are necessary for competition. IBM ads are everywhere. But good PR educates people. That's all it is. You can't con people in this business. The products speak for themselves. So then, this might be the most interesting part uh, of the interview. They get into... Like, what does it take to make a great product? So he's asked the question, because he always uses he uses this term, even from a young age, like, he wants to make insanely great things, insanely great products. This is insanely great. He says it over and over again throughout his life. So he's asked the question, does it take insane people to make insanely great things? And this is his answer. He says, making an insanely great product has a lot to do with the process of making the product, how you learn things and adopt new ideas and throw out old ideas. But yeah, the people who made the Mac are sort of a sort of are sort of on the edge. It says uh, at the, earlier in the interview, they talk about how it's weird that um, the computer industry is making multimillionaires out of what he calls young maniacs, misfits, if you will. Uh, so he says we didn't build. Now he's going to get into like his approach to 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 building a product, and this is. I love this part. He says, we didn't build the Mac for anybody else. We built it for ourselves. We were the group of people who were going to judge whether it was great or not. We weren't going to go out and do market research. We just wanted to build the best thing we could build. When you're a carpenter making a beautiful chest of drawers, you're not going to use a piece of plywood on the back, even though it faces the wall and nobody will ever see it. You'll know it's there. So you're going to use a beautiful piece of wood on the back for you to sleep well at night. The aesthetic. The quality, it has to be carried all the way through. And he compares and contrasts his approach to building the Macintosh to the PC Junior, which is this product at the time. He says, are you saying the people who made the PC Junior don't have the kind of pride in their product? And this is where we see like the sharp tongue of jobs that he was famous for all his life. If they did, they wouldn't have turned out the PC Junior. It seems clear to me that they were designing that on the basis of market research for a specific market segment, for a specific demographic type of customer. And they hope that if they built this, lots of people would buy them and they'd make lots of money. Those are different motivations, meaning the difference between, hey, I'm building a product to make a lot of money, or I'm building a product because I want to build the best possible product. It's, you're going to get complete, two different complete outcomes if you, start, if, you, if you have those two different starting places. So he says the people in the Mac group wanted to build the greatest computer that has ever been seen. Uh, this is something really fascinating. Um, it's something I believe where I'm, the reason I'm trying to constantly expose myself, cause it might like in your day to day life, how many people run into truly brilliant people for, for the, for the average person right now, the answer is zero, <laughs> zero. And so for the reason I'm so thankful to live in the information age is because things like podcasts, books, YouTube, you're able to to access and to expose yourself, and in some cases to have like one-sided, long, in-depth conversations with truly brilliant people. And why is that important? I think it, the reason it's important is because what Steve Jobs is about to tell us about the, the the impact that the thoughts that run through your mind have on your life. He says your thoughts construct patterns like scaffolding in your mind. In most cases, people get stuck in those pattern, just like grooves in a record, and they never get out of them. 
it's a rare person who etches grooves that are other that are other than a specific way of looking at things, a specific way of questioning things. And so I use podcast books, lectures, etc., to to constantly expose myself to other ways of thinking. And then when I find something I like, I just steal it, just like just like Steve Jobs did. Now he says companies as they grow. Uh, to become multi-billion-dollar entities, somehow lose their vision. So he's he's starting to fight with this in his life because Apple's hugely successful. In a few minutes, I'll tell you like what the revenue is at the time. And he's he studied history. He's not a he's extremely smart. He admired and learned from people like Bob Noyce and Intel, Edwin Land at Polaroid, which he's going to talk about in a minute. Uh, Bill Bill Hu and David Packer at HP. Like Jobs was fanatical about learning from people that came before him that were trying to do similar things that did things in his in their lives that he's trying to do right, which is very similar to what we're doing on Founders Podcast. And so now he's identified, hey, there, there's a lot of companies that start off brilliantly, they make these great products. Then what the hell changes as they grow? And he's going to talk about that here. He says companies as they grow to become multi-billion-dollar entities somehow lose their vision. They insert lots of layers of middle management between the people running the company and the people doing the work. And the result is they no longer have an inherent feel or a passion about the products. Think about every large company that you interact with. Like, when did you say, oh, this, the person that built this product is extremely passionate about it? It's, usually that's not the case. It's a small company. It's the artisan. It's the person that's extremely passionate about what they're doing. We're like, God damn, this is really good. Uh, okay, it says, um, oh, and it, let me just touch on that. One of the last interviews he gave before he, lo- before he died, rather, he talks about that Apple was, he's like, we're, the, we're organized like the largest startup in the world. He talked about the structure of Apple to try to get, to make sure that you had small groups of people and building great products. In fact, if you read, um, I forgot, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's Ken Cosienda or something like that. But anyways, he, he, uh, he worked for to see jobs at Apple. He wrote this great book called Creative Selection, which goes in detail about Apple's design product when Steve Jobs was alive. And, you know, Ken had FaceTime. Like, that's how Steve Jobs made decisions. He had people give him demonstrations, and he made decisions incredibly rapidly. So if you haven't read that book and you're interested in building products, I'd highly recommend reading it. Um, He says, Apple is built on refugees from other companies. They're extremely bright individual contributors who are troublemakers, i.e. misfits, at other companies. Now he's going to talk about one, a troublemaker that he admires. Dr. Edwin Land was a troublemaker. He dropped out of Harvard and founded Polaroid. Not only was he one of the great inventors of our time, but more important, he saw the intersection of art and science and business and built an organization to reflect that. So Steve Jobs has said multiple times in in, uh, various different settings that he's just straight up copied Edwin Land on this. He called Edwin Land a hero. He said visiting him, meeting him when uh, I think Edwin was like 70 years old, something like that, and, and Steve Jobs was in his early 20s. He said it was like visiting a shrine. Um, and so this idea right here about building a, a business at the intersection of art, science, and business, it's exactly what he saw Edwin Land did it do, and it's exactly what he wanted to do at Apple, and would he wind up succeeding at Apple. So he says, Polaroid did that for some years, but eventually Dr. Land, one of those brilliant troublemakers, was asked to leave his own company. Now, how spooky is this? Because Steve Jobs has not left Apple yet at this time, and he doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what John Scully and the rest of the, was going to happen a few years from now, but we do. And so when I read this, I just highlighted a bunch of different parts because it's just, it stuck out to me. So uh, he was one of those brilliant troublemakers who was asked to leave his own company, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. So Land, at 75 years old, went off to spend the remainder of his life doing pure science, trying to crack the code of color vision. The man is a national treasure. 
I don't understand why people like that can't be held up as models. So if you haven't, I did a, I read two books on Dr. Land. Uh, one was the, the Company History of Polaroid, which he's obviously heavily featured in. And the other was this great book called Insisting on the Impossible. Unfortunately, I don't know what number Founders is, maybe in like the 30s, I can't recall. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it and then read the book. Uh, you could, you're going to find so many ideas that you're going to credit to Steve Jobs that were actually first thought of and discovered by Edwin Land. He's just a really interesting person. It's fascinating that so few people actually know who he is. Uh, Steve has some interesting ideas about the business se- uh, sector, about selling not only to consumers but to businesses. He says the business market has several sectors. Rather than just thinking of the Fortune 500, which is where IBM is the strongest, I like to think of the Fortune 5 million or the Fortune 14 million. There are 14 million small businesses in this country. I think that the vast group of people who need to be computerized includes that large number of medium and small businesses. We are going to try to bring, uh, be, we are going to try, we are, we are going to try to be able to bring some meaningful solutions to them in 1985. So he says, well, how are you going to do this? And this is just so smart. He says, our approach is to think of them not as businesses, but as a collection of people. That's like a very straightforward like you just you hear that idea and you nod along naturally, right? It's like, oh yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. But in practice, you don't see that. I, I was reading the um there's a founder that has this really popular B2B email newsletter. And it has like, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe like a million people on it by now. I don't know what the number is, maybe six hundred thousand, whatever it is. And he was talking about how he grew his list and, and now his company's doing fantastic. They're doing like hundreds of millions in, in revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he's just like the bar in content for for b2b for businesses is so low because they write like robots and not people they think that businesses are reading the material and the content they're putting out and not realizing that businesses don't read people do and he's like if you just talk to people he's like my competition hasn't picked this up like the reason that we were to grow is because i talk like i talk (laughs) i speak to you as i speak to you like as i speak to anybody else and I, I, he's like, I don't use jargon. No one uses these words. But when you get in a business setting, quote unquote, you have to act professional. You start using and, and, and talking like a robot. And he's like, just don't do that. And I think Steve is saying this, you know, 35 years ago. It's, we're just going to treat them like people. We sold to individuals. And if businesses are just collections of people, then we'll sell to them too. He says, we think that computers are the most remarkable tools that humankind has ever come up with. And we think that people are basically tool users. So if we can get lots of computers, or so if we can get lots of computers to lots of people, it will make some qualitative difference in the world. That is why we came up with the Macintosh. So he's telling us his why there. It's fantastic. He says, um, um, oh, so now he talks about, uh, I, I, I left out some notes here. I should have added, but uh, give me some context here. He talks about like the benefit of having like a broad set of experiences, right? He had a very weird, let's say 15 to 29 years old and so he says, I was, and this is a benefit. This is going to kind of echo what Charlie Munger says about his lifelong uh, mission to, to learn the best ideas in different domains and not to, not to be specialized, you know, uh, overly specialized, just to take the best ideas of, and combine them in a unique way. We saw this with Henry Singleton, the, pod, the podcast I did on that a few weeks ago. So he says, I wasn't completely in any world, one world for too long. There was so much else going on between my sophomore and junior years. He's talking about, I think he's talking about high school. Yeah, yeah, he's talking about high school. Between my sophomore and junior years, I got stoned for the first time. I discovered Shakespeare, Dylan Thomas, and all that classic stuff. I read Moby Dick, and I went back as a junior taking creative writing classes. By the time I was a senior, I'd gotten permission to spend about half my time at Stanford taking classes. Uh, a few paragraphs later, th- this is just a reminder that, you know, big everything, that, everything that's large doesn't start out large. Big things start small, and Apple's no different. 
He says, he was asked the question, was the Apple one for hobbyists? He said, completely. We sold only about 150 of them ever. It wasn't that big a deal. But his realization from that experience, that that, that was maybe a small experience, right? But that what he took away from that was a huge deal. He says, but we made about $95,000. And I started to see it as a business besides just something fun to do. So now he's going to run through the, the different growth, uh, growth of Apple and you see where he's at now. Uh, we did about $200,000 when our business was in the garage in 1976. So I'm going to skip over some of this, but I'm just going to give you the, the highlights. Uh, in 1977, they did $7 million in business. And he says, I mean, that was phenomenal. And then it keeps growing. 78. So they go from seven from 200000 Next year, they go $7 million. The next year, they go $17 million. The next year, they go $47 million. The next year, they go $117 million. Then they go $335 million, $583 million, and $985 million the year after. And he says, I think this year, it'll be a billion and a half. And that's, a, that's why he's such a weird, unique individual, because not only did he pull off the, the greatest corporate comeback in history, but he, people forget, if you don't, uh, there's a great book on this. I did a podcast on it. It's written by Michael Moritz. Um, is it called The Little Kingdom? Return to the Little Kingdom, I think it's, it's called. Um, I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately. I may be bungling that, that um, the title, but you can just go back and look. And why I think it's such a fascinating um, book is because it's not a history of Apple, it's not a biography of Steve Jobs. It's a snapshot in a specific time. It's like the first five years of Apple's founding. And you go back and you realize that like, Steve Jobs was wildly successful um, on his first attempt, right? Uh, first like, major company. And it's, it's very rare to have wild success in a business for, let's say, for 10 or 15 years and then leave that business and you know for a decade and then come back and then have this the second act be much, much larger than the already impressive first act. It's just a, I, I can't recall another example in all the books that I've been reading where, where you see a company perform like that. So um, he says, I used to think about selling a, a 1 million computers a year, but it was just a thought. When it actually happens, it's a totally different thing. So it was like, holy shit, it's actually coming true. But what's hard to explain is, is that this does not feel like overnight. Next year will be my 10th year. I've never done anything longer than a year in my life. Six months for me was a long time when we started Apple. So this has been my life since I've been sort of a free-willed adult. Each year has been so robust with problems and successes and learning experiences and human experiences that a year is a lifetime at Apple. So this has been 10 lifetimes. And then I'll just end here. This is a... Again, I go back to what I said at the beginning, how I love going back and, and looking at somebody. Let's say, what was Steve, what was Jeff Bezos like at 30 years old? What was you know, Henry Ford like at, at 40? Whatever, the, whatever the, the, the person is in the time frame you want to look at, because look at what he says here. And think about what we know of what actually is going to happen over the next 35 years of his life, the, the rest of the time he has left. Um, and he says, he was asked a question, do you know what you want to do with the rest of this lifetime? And here's Steve's answer. I'm not sure. I'll always stay connected with Apple. I hope that throughout my life, I'll sort of have the, th have the thread of my life and the thread of Apple weave in and out of each other, like a tapestry. There may be a few years when I'm not there, but I'll always come back. <laughs>